Welcome to BR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education. In today's episode, we are honored to have Thomas Cower on the show. Thomas is an instructional designer and an e-learning specialist for uh, Envy here, Tesla. He has a master's degree in technology from Harvard, and he's constantly pushing the boundaries on learning and innovation. He's also taught literature and social studies internationally and in the United States. So Thomas is here today to talk about VR training, mostly in enterprise, but he'll tie those lessons that he's learned into K-12 and higher education. So welcome to the show, Thomas. Thanks, Craig. I'm really happy to be here, and I was tickled to be invited. Yeah, you're such a good speaker, so you know, not that I'm putting the pressure on you here. Oh, oh, no, no. I'll, I'll, I'll go for it. Don't worry. I'll bring my... <laughs> so a uh, standard question I ask all my guests uh, is what got you interested in virtual reality in the first place? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I grew up on a, a dairy farm in northern Wisconsin, and my brothers and I used to joke that it was the land where technology goes to die. And so I think, uh, you know, maybe because of that, in spite of it, I don't know. I think I was always compelled by the technological world and like where it was going. Maybe it was a bit of a mystery to me at the time. Um, and then specifically um, XR, I mean, I think it just sort of met all, where all of my dreams wanted to be. So I, I was in my last three years of, of teach. I was a teacher for seven years and I started um, seeing some of the content come out for the HoloLens and I'd always tracked uh, virtual reality a little bit. And then I also started tracking a company called Striver, which does um, uh, in industrial enterprise training. And so I think when, you know, sort of the, there was sort of a rebirth, this most recent wave came out, I was really enamored and decided ultimately that I wanted to pursue it. And so I started playing around with uh, Vuforia and Unity and started out very modestly with, uh, you know, sort of these spheres hovering above this piece of paper and started just doing some some MVPs and proof of concept. And I thought, wow, I think this really um, has legs in a way that it hasn't before. And so I'm going to I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go to grad school and, and pursue this and um, maybe even find a ways to make my living exploring the space. You know, it's not often you hear teachers leave the teaching profession for business and enterprise. And you've done that, and amazingly so, with a, a very um, popular company, Tesla. So tell us about uh, your work that you're currently doing with Tesla and, of course, more importantly, VR. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it was definitely a transition for me. Um, so although I'm super thankful to be where I'm at, uh, it definitely took a while to, to break over that side. Um I think sometimes when you're in education for a while, people are even suspicious about what you did and can you can you make it in the corporate sector, which um, I do not have a doubt about, but that was definitely a question that I, I needed to answer. I mean, I definitely had some transition work before I got over there, um, over to Tesla. But yeah, so I'm I'm at Tesla now though, right? And it's been it's been great. And so they basically brought me on because they needed an instructional designer. Um, and I had been at the Stanford Graduate School of Business for two years and I, I, I hadn't used much of my XR background, honestly. 
And I'm about a year in, um, I, I started looking around for other jobs and, and thinking about going other places, specifically for XR. I was like, you know, I just don't have a portfolio. And through a few very humbling rejections, I realized that I really needed to be able to show that I could do something. Um, and so I started doing a little bit here and there and hadn't actively done it. But one of the companies I got in contact with was Tesla. And I wound up networking with some people that were in their training development team. And I said, hey, I, I sort of have this background in XR and I'm just doing some portfolio stuff on the side, pro bono. If you're interested in this, I'd love to come by and you know tell you what I'm, what I'm doing. And you know, maybe I thought it could lead to a job eventually, but I think at the time I was mostly just trying to build it out, not really thinking I had hope of, of getting hired at the time. And um, so I started exploring a partnership between Tesla and the Stanford XR Club, and that's how I how I how I got there. Um, and sorry, not to, to pass over, I, I just wanted to provide a little context into to where that came from. So, you know, most of my current job is instructional design. So a lot of e-learning. You know, blended learning, instructor-led trainings, uh, mostly mostly for factory floor uh, associates. So they're coming in, they need to learn a type of tool, a type of job, a type of system. Uh, but then you have lots of other sort of semi-technical or technical people. So you're an engineer, you're coming to Tesla for the first time, and there's this system we use to scrap parts, and you need to to go through that. And then eventually, I think there's going to be there's a push for you know sort of alert you know more classical learning and development. So leadership skills, soft skills, people skills. Um, and we're not super into that. So mostly the skill set I work with is hard skills at the moment. So there's a tool. This is how you use the tool. And this is how you stay safe. Um, and the way I'm mostly doing that right now uh, for XR is um, I think there's a lot of, you know, I think when people try it, they think it's really cool. But they wonder, does it actually work in this context? So you could point to all the research you wanted to in the world saying, hey, this is a good idea. There's going to be ROI in terms of um, safety, uh, quality for every, you know, such and such dollar you spend in XR, you're going to get such and such dollars back. Um, but until they see it in the context of their work environment, they're a little bit hesitant. So the biggest thing I'm doing right now is I'm running a pilot. So I have a team of somewhere between six and eight software engineers and designers um, that are all volunteers from across different departments in different areas. Um, super gifted people. This is probably one of the most talented groups I've ever worked with. It's pretty amazing. And um, we're building out a, a prototype um, basically on how to use a certain tool um, that has some safety components to it and uh, has some hazards. Um, and, and, and that's what we're doing right now. So not we're, not, we're in the middle of it. We're building it out. I'm hoping that about... Two months, we'll have that fully built out, and I'll run a pilot with a group that's using mixed reality um, on the HoloLens, another group that's using virtual reality, and another control group that is going through our um, standard mix of ILT and e-learning training. And we're going to compare the outcomes between those three groups. I have to back up a minute. You know, or you probably could have guessed I was going to ask this question. So. I kept waiting for you to say some story like, oh, yeah, Elon Musk phoned me up and we had lunch and he just hired me. So that said, have you ever actually got to meet Elon Musk in, in person? No, no, only only rumors, only rumors. So he, mm. he is in the office. So I do work at the factory where he is at. And um, I think he's there uh, certain days of the week um, and, and then intermittently. Um, but I, I, I personally have never seen him, but I, I've heard lots of stories, especially the early times of Tesla where he was, you know, when they said he was in the factory and, you know, he's sleeping there overnight, that was all true. <laughs> and mm. so, um, 
you know, they used to talk about stories and how he talked to just like people on the line and technicians and engineers. And he was very heavily involved. And um, he's obviously still very involved in the business, but not probably not out on the floor as much. And which is where I'd most likely bump into him. But you can also imagine that in a factory of 10,000 people, you know, it's a small city and, and it's so such a mass of square footage. The odds of me actually running into him if he's out there is, is fairly low. Let's go back to enterprise training for a minute. So I have looked at a few enterprise training VR apps myself. For example, I tried one out. It was CPR training. And so you hop into the world and there's someone lying on the ground and you have to use your VR controllers to, first of all, assess the situation. And then you have to go get uh, an, uh, a resuscitator device to slap on the paddles and try and revive them. Mm-hmm. And then you have to start CPR with your controllers. And I tried this out and I couldn't help but think about and then look at some of the ratings and the criticisms on the website that this was available. And that is, you know, when I'm doing CPR with these VR controllers in my hand, it's not really the correct technique to revive a person doing CPR. So the criticism that some people provide is, you know, due to the lack of, uh, you know, maybe teaching the wrong technique, is VR the right medium to do some of the training like CPR in VR? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a good question. And actually, I remember you sending me this question earlier, and I thought a little bit about it. Um, I think, you know, the answer, as with a lot of things, is it depends. So the idea... uh, if VR, if XR is an incredibly powerful medium and it helps you learn things faster, um, retain them faster, uh, ret- you know, retain them longer, um, so like both a short-term and like longitudinal basis for retention, that means that you can also teach the wrong thing and it's almost as hard to unteach as if you didn't do it the right way. Now, the other part of that is uh, like exactly what is it that you're teaching? So I think at the moment there are still certain uh, physical, like kinesthetic skills that VR simply cannot replace. Uh, in, in some very expensive use cases with certain gloves and mannequins and sort of a mixed reality, I think it can actually get incredibly close, which I've seen examples of. Um, but I think where it really comes into play, where it's always going to be not always superior, but can be superior if designed right, is in terms of process. So the goal of the simulation is just to memorize the process and it's never to replace actually trying it on a dummy because you need to know what that feels like. You need to know that, you know, in some cases you're gonna press so hard that you might actually be cracking ribs and you need to be mentally and emotionally prepared for that. Um, So I would say that, I I think there's a lot, I've heard this a lot, actually not just in this simulation, um, there was a, a, a group I was working with on um, Chinese calligraphy. And there was this big concern that you were going to give this like false impression that they could actually do calligraphy. And um, A, there was probably that sometimes thought like, okay, if you aren't actually trying to make them do calligraphy, like maybe, you know, what's the point? Like, But the other thing being that it's not going to be perfect and mostly they're memorizing the process and hopefully they're immersed and engaged in such a way that they go out and they actually learn it um, better than if they had never gone through the simulation to bed with, uh, to begin with. So I think of XR as a tool that's all about process um, and all about, you know, individualism. So if you're in a class of 
you know, you know, can you say that if you're in a class, you know, that's three hours long and you only get to touch that dummy for a very like limited time. And most of the time you're just have the talking head going at you that it wouldn't be better to at least get your hands on something in the virtual world. I, I don't know. I mean, so yes, is it possible to teach something wrong and that it's difficult to make those corrections? Absolutely. Um, it, do you still need to have those physical interactions? Yes, I think absolutely in, in most cases. Um, but is there a better version of the talking head where you actually get to do something? And yes, you still need to be corrected later on, but you get through it a lot faster because you have the process already memorized. I think it's, I think it's, there's sort of this weird um, idea that we can like slow down the promotion of XR being like, well, it's not fully, you know, the real thing. So let's not do it at all versus realizing a lot of education, a lot of training is subpar. Um, and so I think XR is a step in the right direction in allowing everyone to interact. You know, with what a fantastic, fantastic point. You know, the other thing, once it was all over and said and done, and I actually took the headset off, is it struck me that, you know, the point to the CPR maybe wasn't necessarily pushing down. It was exposing me and others, of course, to the visceral sort of situation itself and, and get me maybe comfortable or used to, if it's possible, or more numb to the fact that I'm in a room now and I have someone who's just fell on the floor and is going into cardiac arrest. And how, how do I emotionally get used to dealing with that so that I follow the right procedure? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that makes me think of the uh, Jeremy Billinson's um, DICE framework, which is, you know, what are, what are good contexts for using simulations? Is it um, I can't think of all of them offhand. It's like dangerous, um, expensive, um, counterproductive, and um, the eye evades me. But, you know, something that's dangerous, right, like, and, and difficult to recreate is someone who's actually, you know, there's a body on the ground, and you need to do that. Well, learning is incredibly contextualized, right? So being able to just be exposed to that and know that you can jump into action faster, I think that you could very quickly demonstrate that that people are more prepared when they go through VR than if they just do it in the classroom on the dummy, um, just because of that, you know, that recreation of what real life looks like. I think it for sure increases transfer. If done right, I, I always want to put that caveat there. It is possible to contextualize it, but you build it in such a way that it actually makes it worse. But if you have someone who's thoughtful, if they're trained in that area, that context is, is everything. Speaking of context, in education, I've seen lots of virtual field trips where people can go places that maybe they couldn't afford to go or just couldn't go in general. But there's also experiences, probably in enterprise as well, where we create a, a digital twin, you know, a digital twin of a museum or in the case of enterprise, maybe a digital twin of the factory floor. You know, obviously there's pros and cons to each type of context. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, the virtual field trip versus this whole new digital holodeck, if you will, that you put people in? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, you know, I might actually have a little bit of an unpopular answer here. So I think it depends. I'll take, okay, I'll take two parts to this. Okay, I'll start with education and then I'll, I'll go into industry. So I think the, the virtual field trip is sometimes oversold. So 
depending on what you do with it. <laughs> Obviously, that's my, my key phrase here. <laughs> so if you go on the virtual field trip and they get to have the experience and then they come out of it and they debrief it in some sort of meaningful way and there's a fairly meaningful pace to it or if you have aspects of the field trip where they actually need to find and seek things out. So normally, when, so when I was a teacher, um, I always hated when we bring students on field trips and everyone wanted them to fill out worksheets because I was like, you know, come on, this is a really rich experience. Like, let's just go, let's experience it. Let's debrief it later. But like, let's live in the moment. Let's not be sitting here filling out worksheets. Like we've pulled them out of school, so they don't need to do worksheets, right? Like let's let them, let them be here. But I actually think that having some sort of um, goal in the virtual world is important because I think it's too easy for kids to game the system. So they'll click through, they'll do random things. They're, they're not really taking it in. They're mostly trying to like almost like get to the part that's engaging. And so I think if you either go in and they have things that they need to seek out and then they can, you know, write it down or journal about it. Or you, you debrief afterwards, and they're going to need to debrief with friends and with the class. So then there's some sort of social pressure, positive social pressure, where it's like, okay, I'm here, but like there's a reason I'm here, and like there's a reason I'm experiencing that. Um, but I think this idea is sometimes people are like, oh, the field trip, it's so much more exciting than the classroom. But I don't know about you, like when I took my kids on field trips, there were kids that like would wander off all the time or not pay attention or like not listen to the tour guide. So this idea that you're just going to put people in and they're just going to learn like VR is osmosis. I think that's really a bad way to approach it. Um, but when you put them in it and there's a goal and there's a way to debrief and there's a way there, there's, it feels purposeful. Um, then I think it can be really powerful on the industry side. Um, so I think field trips can be good to help them understand uh, it's a little, like a little hard to measure, but so, you know, one thing is we have employees come in, they've never worked in a big fret, uh, factory, it's loud, it's noisy, there's all kinds of people, there's all kinds of machines. And so I think the digital uh, field trip can actually help them ease into the experience uh, better. And I, I would argue, but I, you would have to measure it, and I haven't done a, a pilot like this yet, that if you put them in that environment and they're more used to it, that they're actually going to learn better because their cognitive load is so less because it's no longer a new experience. They've, they at least have some sort of schema for that when they walk in. Um, but for me, the field trip is not nearly as powerful as the interactive experience. So if I go back in history, that's really great. Um, but if I go back in the history and it's sort of a gamified lesson where, you know, maybe I need to figure out how to like, um, you know, you're in the story, but you're enlisted into the military, and then you need to figure out how to go and the confusion, you're separated from your family, and it's part of this really strong narrative. To me, narrative field trips are, and where you interact and do things are much more powerful than, you know, just just being there, which I think is almost all of the experiences I've been in. Uh, not all. There's, there's an exception. Um, I think Oculus put out a great one by um, with the Titanic that was very narrative-driven, um, but I've seen a lot more that you're just kind of in a random 360 space. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's powerful. It's good, but you got to be have intention behind it. You know, you, you mentioned gamification. Uh, I haven't seen, mind you, it's not quite my world, a lot of gamified enterprise applications. However, education, uh, which is more my wheelhouse, you know, you'll often see either in VR or not, 
the use of gamification to try and, you know, I, I hate to use the word trick, but literally trick kids into learning outcomes. Does enterprise use gamification much or are they much too serious for something like that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say they use it less. I, I think with millennials coming into the workplace, um, a, a lot of uh, baby boomers and even some Xers have been like, oh, these millennials, they seem to like games. And so we're going to like give them badges and they're going to be motivated by that. Um, and actually the research is like mixed on it. <laughs> There's some, you know, some examples that demonstrate that's really good. Other people have found that it's like very extrinsic and limited and it's not you know super motivating in the long run. And mostly it's, does it matter or not? So I would say um, it's there, but I feel it's like mostly in the LMS and the e-learning space. Um, mm. For virtual reality, I think they've mostly relied on that the experience is real and relevant. Like you're about to do this job right now, and that's incredibly engaging. Now that said, it depends on what you mean. There are still elements of gamification, right? You put a time timer in there versus a timer not in there. You, you, the timer might not be connected to anything. You just put a clock counting down in virtual reality. Man, people start moving faster. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, you know, if you're measuring mistakes, so you know, if they grab the right tool or they grab the wrong tool or you know they mix up the order or whatever that we're taking points on that. You know, that's like a form of you know, are you winning or losing? It's actually sort of a back end. It's assessing you as you go, really. Um, and I think certainly putting elements of fun in. So we were working with this vendor and they're helping build the simulation. And when these two parts connected, like confetti flew out of it. And it was very engaging and very cool. It was very minor. And I don't think they would say, okay, that confetti made people like learn 10% more. But just the, the idea that there was something, you know, something colorful, something interesting within what would otherwise be like a somewhat dull world. Um so yeah, so I think there, there's like, you know, parts of gamification, these, these timers, these games, you can do badges. But for me, um, I think there's nothing more motivating than, you know, you, this is about to be your job tomorrow. This is how you make money. And uh, this experience is engaging because you get to do it. You're not just watching it. You're using the tools. You're learning the things that you're going to do. I think that's very immediate and relevant. What I will say is, one of the biggest misnomers, I think, in both education and industry is the idea of adult learning. I am blown away by, like, how people translate that. So um, I think one of the earliest places I heard it read was, like, 1833 or something like that, like the adult learning. And it's androgogy instead of pedagogy, right? So adult learning. But that's never what pedagogy meant. Like, pedagogy meant learning like a child. In fact, I think if you even take the Greek, it means, like, taking a child and making them into a leader. Um, and like, so it's this idea that everyone learns like a child and you start out from the beginning and you don't know what you're doing and you need to slowly build up. And so people have been like, well, do you know how adults learn? Well, actually there's ample research that turns out that adults learn an awful lot like kids learn. Um, and so, you know, if they're, you know, they like to make their own decisions. Um, they, uh, they are motivated by things that they're gonna actually have to do later. They're motivated by their peers. Um, they don't want to look stupid like they, you know, so, so, so industry is different, but actually it turns out that a lot of the skills that you would use to teach a child are very similar to the, the skills you use to teach adult. And then the big one people will say is like, well, what about pride? And that's true, but I think children can be pretty prideful too, if you've ever been in the classroom. Um, and, and I think, so most of andragogy to me is to trick adults into learning like children and not feeling like children. 
Like to me, that's most of what andragogy actually is. And actually, there's an example of this with um, I believe it was TPR, Total Physical Response, by Dr. James Asher, who popularized the theory of language learning. And I think it's 1979. I might be wrong on that year. You can Wikipedia. You can Google me later. Uh, Google this later. But the point is, there were adults that compared to kids that learned through traditional met methods, both learn versus learning through like interacting, moving, jumping, whatever. And it turns out that the adults that learned through these highly kinesthetic, very what could be perceived as childlike interactions actually learned faster. They were chained more. Their pronunciation was better because they listened. Um, that's part of the method too. But so, uh, yeah, so industry is different. You know, you, you can bring in elements of gamification, but mostly in experience that is engaging and relevant and interactive. I think that's very motivating for both kids and adults alike. I'm, I'm glad you actually mentioned this. It goes the other way too. I think uh, as an educator of K-12 for almost 28 years now, I think, you know, we, we would say that, yeah, you know, when you're teaching adults, they need way more agency. But in today's world, kids need just as much agency and I don't think we give them enough respect in regards to that voice and choice and so I'm glad you brought that up and you know I agree with you 100% that you know good teaching effective teaching mm -hmm. whether it's children or adults I would argue looks the same in many aspects so that's an excellent point to bring up mm -hmm. I, talk about 100%. I agree with that like that idea of children needing agency and independence and autonomy and like letting them do it versus letting them listen to it. I, I think it can't be overstated. Let's talk about the learning design process in VR, which uh, is a big topic that is brought up for me when I do some of my consulting work with teachers. So, you know, VR is slightly different in a way. If you think about uh, putting on a VR headset, you know, you've got step one, which is often called onboarding or, a tutorial on, you know, how do you use the controls? You know, what's the environment like? And then there's, of course, instruction. That is to say, there's a learning goal that you need to make sure that the person or user in VR is attuned to and understands. Then they might have practice with that learning goal somehow, whether it's gamified practice or not, I'm not sure. And then maybe assessment after. So, you know, kind of four, I see it as four stages. Which of those do you find is the hardest to get right? Uh, I kind of put you on the spot here. I <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, all of them. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I. So okay. I mean, so like, let's start with. And I think, I think the. Yeah, I hear. I can explain why I think it's it's complicated. It's a great question, by the way. Um, Thank you. Well, you know, in, in the digital world, you're not as afraid. Like, that's one of the parts of it is your body buys into it. But as someone who's been in the digital world quite a bit, like, especially if you've used it for some time, you also kind of know that, like, if the dinosaur is there, you can kind of pet it on the nose and it's not going to be a big deal. So you, if you're not careful, you could teach a level of flippancy within very dangerous environments. So on one note, it's very good for um, conditioning them to respond, like we talked about with the uh, CPR example. On another note, you could get them to like get into a flow state faster that could actually be dangerous if you don't teach them how to do it seriously. So, for example, when we're using the tools, 
we actually want to build out aspects of the simulation where they could get hurt or where the negative effect is very shocking or jarring. So for, let's say they touch the part of the tool they're not supposed to. You know, maybe the screen flashes red for a second and a very loud noise comes off of. Now that's going to really be like, whoa, it's going to wake you up and, and pay attention. But there are just so many things to think about when you're building, like, the world, right? I mean, it's, it's so broad what you can build or not build. Um, so, gosh, you know, I think... I think if I were to say it, ultimately, I think the middle, you know, the, the ultimate simulation itself that as you're teaching is probably the hardest part. But I just think every component has a unique challenge, um, depending on how you look at it. I, I would say probably, you know, the actual teaching part, you know, and then assessment um, can be tricky only in that you don't know what to do with it. So, for example, I think that's like, you know, everything. So basically an assessment is a prediction that they're not going to go out and be able to perform as well as someone who has done the assessment better. At least a good assessment would be able to tell that there's lots of really shoddy assessments out there. Um, but so you're, you, you go through this and so now how do you respond to that? And do you know you're doing the right thing? So like, let's say you're timing them and that rep person responds better to the timer, but actually on the line, they'd be a little bit better with quality or something like that. So, you know, just kind of ending there. I, I mean, I just think that there's there's thoughtfulness to each part, and there's a lot of make mis a lot of mistakes. So basically, if our goal is to make XR look, taste, behave like the real world, and you can imagine building any training or or you know any lesson in the real world, and it turns out it's really difficult to get everyone in the same page at the same time. It's going to be just as hard doing it in virtual reality with the advantage of you can be more engaging to the individual. So it's much more scalable, say, in a, if you had everyone in a classroom of 100 that all had virtual reality devices, you know, versus a classroom of 100 and they have one teacher in front, you know, not doing engaging things. You know, so there there is an advantage there for sure. But, you know, the idea is that it's the simulations are good as long as they're good simulations. You know, the education world is really bad at this, and that is uh, iteration. You know, unlike the business world, the education world, if I have like a, a learning experience or a really good lesson, I just don't have the time or resources to practice it, to expose it maybe to just a small group of kids and get their feedback, and then I can adjust and iterate before I actually deliver it maybe to a larger group of 30 some students. Whereas in the business world, if I'm a product designer, I, I have to do that. If I, if I have a shoe, I might take it to a bunch of users, do some tests on it, get their feedback. I might iterate and change. How about in enterprises? Like when you design or uh, when you have a VR application, is there like constant, incessant iteration before you would actually use it with all of the Tesla employees? Yeah. So, um, so one of the, when I was at the Stanford graduate school of business, one of the courses I got to manage, um, was, uh, design thinking. Mm -hmm. So it exposed me to, I, I was already familiar with the concept, but, um, as Stefano Zenos is just brilliant. And, uh, who's a professor who's kind of the, the guru at the graduate school of business. And, um, you know, different professors, different organizations have like a slightly different flavor. And so I always enjoy getting to expose to the different methodologies. Obviously, their their focus was on was on business itself. 
Um, but yeah, so thinking about my end user, right? So we make this product. We try to make a minimal viable product, minimum viable product as fast as possible. Get it in front of the user um, far before it's polished, far before it's perfect, and just getting feedback as, as fast as possible. So it's about increasing that feedback loop, right? Um, so education was particularly hard because you were always just like a day ahead. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say that most of your iteration came annually. So if you had good notes or, um, you know, things like that, I mean, I think something, if I were to go back into teaching, which who knows, someday I, I could maybe, I think it'll be a long time, but um, maybe the end of, end of my career or something, I could always see jumping back in the classroom. You know, something I would do is actually getting survey from students, right? Um, so like, let's say you're starting out some sort of a project and you introduce it on the first day and just uh, like asking them questions, like what questions do they have? Like what, what went well? What didn't go well? Like having debriefs, which it turns out is super good for kids anyways, because um, it gives them an understanding to have the questions they have. It gives them an understanding to debrief. And then you as a teacher, um, but it still winds up being annual. But so, yes, on the industry side, it's much more faster because my, um, how to describe it? Like I always said this in teaching, like your job is so many things. <laughs> like you are like, you are a counselor, you are a hall monitor, you are dropping kids off the bus, but you also need to write lessons. And it's so condensed, you know what I mean? Whereas I get paid like to iterate on these things. Like that is my job is to go get your feedback and I can build that into my week. So for sure, I think industry has a huge, huge advantage. Um, and usually when people from industry, if they come back and they're like, oh, teachers, you know, you think it's light. I just want to be like, you have no idea. <laughs> I mostly just don't say anything because I know they won't understand. But um, yeah. So how would you, so how would you iterate a, a, v, a VR experience though? How would that happen? Like, would you try and, uh, you know, I don't know, put it on, on Twitch or like, where would you get feedback? Just smaller groups of people within Tesla would come and, and, and test it out before you, like I said, rolled it out or scaled it out to a larger group? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so probably what I'll do is, um, so I have a couple headsets and the we have, um, we need to compile our code a little bit and compile our, our, our simulation, but because we kind of have all the parts built out. So basically once they put it together, um, I'm going to have two headsets at work and I'm just going to go to like random engineers and random people around the office and uh, like HR. And I'm just going to like start being like, Hey, would you mind like trying out these simulations? And I'm going to get, try to get, to, you know, maybe 10 users, not make it too crazy um, and get their feedback um, and then bring it back and then uh, iterate it and, and build on it. So that's, that's how I do it. I think sometimes people are like, you need to get it to a hundred users. You know, I think part of rapid iteration is that you don't necessarily bring it to a hundred people if it's not scalable that way, right? If you have something that's online, you have the ability to do that. But, you know, uh, you know, t 10 high quality interviews, um, you know, maybe 45 minutes to an hour, maybe that includes a simulation or maybe not, you will get most of your changes, even with just with 10 users. Hmm. I want Next, you to pull out out MIT on this. So they, they did a bunch of research on like how much how much your product changes. And after 10 people, it was something like 90 percent of your features were recommended that that wind up ever being recommended so it doesn't need to be an infinite amount of people mm. i want you to pull out your crystal ball for a moment here so especially in education the uptick of vr has been quite slow um one can argue maybe and you could provide more data on this that industries 
uh, a little bit ahead of education in taking on uh, VR. What do, what do we need to happen to move these two industries forward on the uptick of using VR learning experiences to enhance learning? Yeah, I mean, I think the the price barrier is is too high. So, I mean, you have companies like, um, you know, you know, HTC Vive and Oculus that are that are pushing the the price point so much lower. Yeah, but then for enterprise, well, education, they're a little more merciful. Enterprise, they're a little bit more, you know, they're saying, well, this is the high-end user, so we're going to give you this, you know, larger headset that you don't actually, you know, maybe need um, or the outcomes aren't better for. But um, I think price points are huge. And, and so I think right now VR is at a stage where learning management systems were, say, like, I don't know, five, maybe, you know, I would I need to look up like what the time frame is, but there's this massive expansion that takes place and all these companies are coming up and, 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 you know, they either start getting bought up or succeeding or tanking. And then on the other side of that, I think is when prices really start getting um, like normalized. Um, like people understand the technology, they understand what they, they can or can't charge. And so I feel like there are, I'm, I'm approached by vendors all the time and, and sometimes I love it. Sometimes I don't. Um, but I'm amazed that, that people will be like, oh yeah. And this only costs, you know, $150,000. And they think like Tesla is this big company that can do whatever they want with their money. And they do not realize how lean we are. And that I would be like laughed out of my office space if I said, oh, and this will only cost, you know, $100,000 this round. And uh, it's like $75,000 a year for upkeep. Like that's easy, right? It, it just is not the case. And so I think a lot of developers are their own worst enemies in actually moving the space forward. Everyone thinks they're going to make a ton of money. But could you imagine saying that you're going to make that kind of money off of a learning management system or like, you know, these like, you know, these basic software interfaces in education or industry? Um, I'm rambling here a bit, but the, the, the point is, I think price point is significant. And I think that people think that the, they demonstrate an ROI, but if the initial barrier of entry is so high, people are still understanding it. Like make it easy, <laughs> like make it easy for people to make the contract, make it easy for people to like try it out. Um, so there aren't a lot of like freemium models yet. Right. So I think when price goes down, when there's more freemium models, when there's more, Oh, you know, when device saturation is enough that like I can throw on a headset and try out your thing and you haven't had to come to the office and demo it. I think that that's going to propel it forward a lot faster. Hmm. Good answer. Hey, anything left unsaid that you think the audience might want to hear when it comes to uh, XR and learning? Sorry, the question was, what, what do I think they would want to hear? Uh, or, you know, anything pertinent that maybe we haven't talked about that you sort of say, you know what, uh, this is a podcast, this is a podcast for anyone involved in learning, boy, I wish we would have addressed or brought up this point. Sure, sure. Um, so there's two things that come to mind. One is, I think people think XR is this incredibly new thing. And it's really not. <laughs> I, there, there, you know, there's like, um, I, I, there's this talk I sometimes do called uh, 300 Years of History uh, in XR. And uh, it's pretty cool. Like, I'll just give you one example. So you, you think of stereoscopic vision, which is a version of virtual reality. 
Um, so like, especially popularized during the, the 18, uh, you know, it's sort of Civil War area, mid 1800s. And you can actually take these old uh, stereoscopic um, uh, devices and you can put your iPhone in them and you can use them if you use the, the virtual reality tool. And so I think uh, if you're interested in virtual reality, definitely looking in the history um, and thinking about uh, that, that there, this, this isn't brand new. And in fact, educational technology is not brand new, right? At one point, the pencil and the chalkboard were these amazing things. Um, you know, the magic lantern was going to be this device that totally changed education. And if we just got kids in the magic lantern, uh, they weren't going to need to learn anymore. They were just going to put them in front of the magic lantern, which is a precursor to the projector. It was backlit by a candle. It would project these things. And man, education was so boring. And there's all these rich and wonderful quotes about about how technology was going to change it. But man, it, it look up the history. It's super interesting. And it helps you, hopefully it gives you a vision for... Like, we really need to do this well. Like, for example, like cell phones um, and like the internet in most classrooms that I see are not being used well yet. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just like that they're just going to jump into virtual reality when the, those places have not been exhausted. There's still an incredible amount of learning that has not been done that, that could be done. Um, so I think that and then, but then also being, so being a little bit hesitant about technology as the silver bullet, but at the same time, being hopeful about the possibilities and what it can do. I mean, so the research on contextualizing your learning, about measuring, you know, transfer retention, longitudinal retention, recall speed is unbelievable. (laughs) Like the possibilities of these, you know, of these, of virtual reality, of XR being done well is looking i mean just off the charts Mm. um so yeah so i I i would say that definitely those like have a little bit of you know hesitation um have a little bit of hope um and then know as with any technology that it can and will be abused uh to levels that we've never even experienced before um so i i think definitely being aware of that you can imagine the addiction that can occur with such a visceral, a visceral experience. Um, and so, you know, I'm hopeful about VR. You know, I'm very slow to put my kids um, in it right now within the right context. My children are very little, by the way. I mean, they're, they're four and three. So to be clear, like, yeah. you know, 13. Uh, but my, my point is that I, I would not hesitate if there was a social studies that, you know, virtual reality and they're going in the classroom. I 100% on board. But if I bought my kid that and now they're doing everything in that virtual world, they're doing their homework, they're checking email and not space, I just think there are a lot of unanswered questions going forward. So a little bit of doubt, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of hope, and then just a little bit of thoughtfulness that if you do dive into this, make sure that you go in slowly and and just approach it with a level of respect. Respect as a tool and respect as something that can be abused. What a great way to end. Thomas, thanks so much for coming on the show. If uh, people had more curiosity or questions, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, add me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to, to start threads, to start conversations. Um, it, you know, hit, hit me up there and, and I'll be glad to, glad to chat. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much for taking your Thanksgiving weekend to be on the show. And if you hold on after... Uh, we can have just a quick conversation to debrief. That sounds great.